Hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 172 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of a good friend of mine, Brian Whistler, uh, who is the uh, white-collar defense lawyer at Baker McKenzie. Um, In any event, I thought Brian would be an interesting uh, interview today because uh, of the Biden transition, and uh, Brian actually served in the transition of the Bush administration in 2000 at the Justice Department, and he may be able to give us some perspective on what's going to happen here with the new Biden administration and the new uh, Department of Justice. Anyways, I hope you'll enjoy this uh, interview. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor, Blue Umbrella. How are you managing your third-party compliance program? Is your technology vastly assisting you or getting in your way? Blue Umbrella, in concert with some of the largest, most sophisticated compliance programs in the world, has devised a user-friendly, customizable platform that automates tasks and seamlessly integrates with adjacent enterprise systems. Blue Umbrella has employed advanced technology, along with a healthy dose of common sense, to make sure that compliance professionals using status are able to focus on managing issues that arise, monitoring the health of their program, and proactively anticipating risks as a business partner. Curious? Contact us at blueumbrella.com for a quick demo. Well, hello everybody. Uh, Michael Volkoff here, and I'm really proud and happy and pleased, whatever you want to say, to have uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Whistler, uh, to uh, help us today in our discussion of the Biden administration and the transition and what sort of uh, we we see coming down the road. Uh, Brian, thanks for being here. Before I introduce you and you know commit perjury in my introduction of you, I just wanted to say thanks for showing up and look forward to it. Mike, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you and so appreciate your friendship and uh, just the opportunity to contribute to your, uh, your exercise here today. Well, thanks. Uh, let me take a little bit here to introduce Brian, but then I'll tell you the real story at the end. Uh, Brian is actually uh, one of the leaders of the white collar practice at Baker McKenzie. Uh, he's been there for 12 years. Uh, I've probably known Brian uh, going back 20 years at least. Uh, before uh, Brian uh, was at Baker McKenzie, he served for 15 years as a federal prosecutor for DOJ. He was the criminal chief, assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia in Richmond. Uh, He also served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Western District of North Carolina for uh, 10 years. So uh, Brian is an award-winning prosecutor, really just a a terrific uh, person. And and I've had the pleasure of working with uh, Brian in several cases through the years. And also uh, got to meet Brian during his uh, incredible leadership during the transition uh, of the Bush uh, administration's Department of Justice. Um, And I guess, Brian, you go way back with Paul McNulty, Bob Mueller, uh, some of the sort of greats that we've had the opportunity to work with in our careers. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's right, Mike. Uh, and I think you and I did first cross paths now some 20 years ago uh, when I was uh, detailed 
from Charlotte up to Justice for the uh, 2001 uh, Justice transition that was led at the time by my uh, my dear friend and uh, colleague and mentor Paul McNulty, who I believe had been on the Hill at that time. And um, Paul asked uh, uh, if I would come and, and temporarily serve on the transition team uh, in the early days and uh, help uh, help get things organized um, on, uh, at the at the Justice Department. And uh, yeah. as you mentioned, yeah, but, go ahead. But Paul was in. But Paul was in the. Uh, I think he was on the Hill. He was the chief counsel, like at House Judiciary Committee or something. Yeah, right? that's right. Before he, he came was, down. That's right. He was uh, chief counsel for the House Judiciary Committee. I believe serving under Bill McCollum at the time, if memory serves me right. Um, and uh, was asked to come over and and head up the the transition. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, Bob Mueller uh was uh inserted as the acting deputy uh attorney general in the early going uh in terms of leading uh of that effort and i and uh i want to talk about that in a little bit in relation to and maybe you can sort of weave it into discussing the process that we're going to see now with the biden administration taking over uh, the Justice Department, and and I think, at least your perspective, I would imagine it, it it's no easy process. It's no sort of simple process here to take over uh, the Justice Department, and you were sort of right in the middle of that. What what do you see happening? Sort of first steps, and as we go along here with uh, the Biden administration and the new DOJ. Yeah, sure. Now it's a fascinating process. Um, it's you know tends to be cloaked in a lot of a lot of mystery, right? Because um, it's not something that's particularly visible uh, to to most folks. But you know, at least in, back in two thousand one, when I was part of that initial team, I mean, it was a it was a really thin uh, kind of skeletal staff that was in place, and you know, you're you're really kind of just finding your way, figuring out, you know what's happening at the at the department uh both in terms of policy and practices and notable cases and that's that's what our mandate was uh in the early going was to survey you know the various uh sections in the criminal division in particular my focus was more criminal than than civil at the time uh trying to understand what are the most notable cases what are the current kind of policies and practices that are guiding uh, the enforcement efforts at the department. So really, just surveying the landscape uh, at the outset was was the mandate. And uh, you know, I've already noticed the the Biden administration appointed a transition team and named a group of people. And as I recall, when you were doing this, it was a pretty small group of people. I mean, I'm talking about twenty or less of skeletal staff. Yeah. And you also That's, have responsibility. Responsibility, Brian, though, for 94 U.S. attorneys offices. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we 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 started by focusing on what was happening at Maine, but then, of course, you have to also be thinking about what's happening in the field. And you know, policy is usually driven out of Maine, as you know. Um, but understanding what's being done in the field, how are cases being managed and staffed. And and you know what's the what's the landscape look like in terms of of U.S. attorneys, 
Um, and as you can see, I mean, you know, the likes of Neil McBride, a former U.S. attorney in Eastern Virginia, uh, is prominent, I think, in the in the Biden transition team, which I think is 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 a good thing all around. Um, Neil knows the department really well. He's obviously served as a U.S. attorney, um, and he's a, a very thoughtful uh, lawyer who I think will serve the the new administration very well. And uh, as I rec- at the time you're doing the transition work, had a new uh, attorney general been nominated, or was there speculation at the time as to who it would be? Uh, in terms of naming, because I guess it was, uh, I'm trying to think back to those days, it was, yeah. um, um, uh, it wasn't Michael Chertoff, he was made the head no. of the No, it that's was, right. Uh, so it was Ashcroft, John Ashcroft, right, who right, was right. ultimately uh, nominated uh, to serve in the post of attorney general. And, and I, I can't remember exactly the sequence of events how they unfolded that led to that nomination. But, you know, I think, it's, it, I mean, he certainly was installed, um, I think, uh, you know, by the middle of the year in 2001, um, if memory serves me, me right, because I did have an opportunity to be in meetings with him. And, and I'll tell you probably one of my most memorable stories about him when I have a chance. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but Mueller was in place, uh, Bob Mueller was in place um, you know, at the outset, and um, and the rest of the the skeletal staff included a number of folks that had come up from Texas. Um, uh, you know, with had been with then Governor Bush, uh, including uh, an individual named Ted Cruz, who was really? part of the uh, yeah. Ted Cruz was uh, uh, was there at the very beginning, and. Um, and has uh, you know now ascended to greater heights, but uh, but yeah, Ted was there along with some other folks. Johnny Sutton uh, had come up with uh, with with the Bush team, uh, Phil Perry, um, and then there was um, a number of other folks that uh, you know also were kind of interspersed throughout uh, the department. But but Paul Paul was the uh, was was responsible for the transition, and then Mueller was was staffed as the acting. Um, uh, deputy until he was later replaced that year with uh, uh, Larry Thompson, who's of That's the right. Thompson, Thompson memo fame, as as you remember. Right. And Larry Thompson was just the uh, monitor in the VW case, as I recall. And uh, we all stay in touch with him. He's a terrific guy. Sure. Um, um, anyway, so now, you, and you mentioned Neil McBride, who I've worked with and know is a terrific guy. And uh, we'll, we'll probably bring a lot of uh, good perspective, I think, to uh, the department. Um, so, you know, looking forward in terms of enforcement, and everybody's expecting a more aggressive enforcement environment, what's, what's your sort of overall macro picture of what do you think is going to happen here as, as the Biden administration slowly takes over uh, DOJ? <laughs> Yeah, you know, as I as I look back on 2001 and how that you know kind of informs you know what might occur um, here as we turn the corner on uh, 21, which I think signals that you and I are both getting very old, Mike. Yeah, I know. Um, We're going downhill, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't a sharp turn uh, from 
the one administration to the next. And then, you know, that was a change in political teams, if you will. Um, it wasn't a sharp turn, I don't believe, uh, in terms of DOJ enforcement. But certainly, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that each administration at DOJ wants to kind of make its mark. And as you might remember, in 01, one of the principal areas of enforcement that that was, you know, was prominent uh, in the early going was the uh, prosecution of, of gun violence. Right. And I was I was assigned to help develop and implement a national enforcement strategy, which became known as Project Safe Neighborhoods, which uh, you might remember was replicated on the uh, really the good work that uh, was done in Richmond under uh, Jim Comey. Jim right. Comey had, had been the uh, head of the office in Richmond um, uh, in the late 90s and had developed a really good gun enforcement program called Project Exile um, that was starting to take hold in other regions of the country. And then the Bush team at uh, DOJ decided, let's make it a national program. Uh, uh, initiative and that's what evolved into project safe neighborhoods which was mandated for all 93 u.s attorney's offices so i say that just by way of demonstrating what oftentimes happens is you know there that the the incoming team is looking to identify what's an area that we can devote you know an emphasis to i think for the biden administration um i imagine that there will probably be a heightened emphasis on uh, corporate fraud, um, corruption cases, uh, antitrust enforcement, and uh, healthcare uh, fraud enforcement, which is not a you know radical shift from where things currently are. Uh, so I think for purposes of you know those kind of cases, they'll they'll probably take on increased vigor. Um, and and perhaps uh, you know we'll see a, a a shift in resources from you know garden variety street level crime uh, guns and drugs to you know probably a heightened emphasis on white collar prosecutions. Yeah, I always you know I I always tell people that you can tell where the department's going by looking at where they put their resources because if you Correct. put a bunch of attorneys in a room or in, an, in a particular section, they got to produce. And right. law enforcement has got to produce with them. So, uh, you know, one of the things that people are really interested in is what's going to happen with FCPA enforcement. And I know you do a lot of work uh, in that area right now, Brian, and have had a lot of, a number of cases in this area. But, um, you know, I, I have not seen much, I didn't see much of a slowdown in this last administration, the Trump administration, if anything, uh, I think they uh, sort of, you know, full speed ahead. And uh, I happened to speak to the acting unit chief, uh, David Last, recently, and he told me that uh, he expects it just to continue as is. And actually, they're looking to hire a few more attorneys, which I think is going to mean we may end up with a little bit more work coming out of that. What's your sense of FCPA, for example? 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting because every client that you and I have, usually around the time of a change in administrations, that's the first question they have, right? What does this mean for mm-hmm. uh, the FCPA? And I think the answer is consistently, you know, been generally consistent in the sense that we haven't seen any great deviations uh, as a result of change in administrations. And I I tend to agree with you. I I think that this new administration will you know, continue in the same trajectory and possibly even, you know, reignite or, or, you know, enhance uh, the current efforts in terms of FCPA enforcement. I mean, as you know, Mike, there's, you know, it's somewhat self-funding, right? Because right. Um, they get, they get prosecutor slots from these settlements that, that, you know, they're able to kind of sustain increased resources through the outcomes of these uh, settlements. Yeah. One, uh, well, one other thing I've noticed too, Brian, and I, I wonder if you share this perspective, is a lot of those cases now are being worked not just with a DOJ attorney, but an attorney's out in the field in the U.S. Attorney's Office, where the criminal division partners with an attorney out in the field, leveraging their resources once again, you know? Yeah. No, that's right. I, and I'm currently in the middle of a case that, that they're doing just that. And, uh, I think we're seeing more and more of that. And that's a big change, I think, from, you know, when you and I were AUSAs. I mean, it was made pretty clear that Maine Justice, you know, had the lead and was in charge of driving the FCPA agenda. But now it does appear that they are partnering more with folks in the field. I mean, they do need to, you know, have a venue where they can do their grand jury, of course. Uh, but but we are seeing, I think, more of that kind of um, collaboration. Yeah. And if uh, the other thing that I think may be interesting here is I noticed, you know, the SEC's role in these cases, I think, uh, has been pretty consistent, but we may see a push from their side. And one name I heard for, you know, taking over for Mr. Clayton would be, uh, I heard Preet Bharara was under consideration. And, you know, he was the U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. And I think if you put a former prosecutor in there, federal prosecutor in as the head of the SEC, I think you could see a, a real significant change in S, not only the SEC role in FCPA cases, but in general, don't you think? I do. And I heard the same about uh, about a possible uh, successor to, to, to Clayton uh, being Preet. And, you know, that, that obviously would, would really just increase kind of the muscularity of, of the SEC uh, when it comes to the enforcement of these cases. And don't forget, too, you know, uh, DOJ has been, you know, kind of enlarging the scope of their their work in the corruption space by by using money laundering predicates for right. uh, for these cases as well. So I think that's something we'll probably continue to see much easier to, to, to have jurisdiction over cross-border money laundering. Uh, matter uh, than an FCPA case, and by my uh, my own judgment. Yeah, and I think so. We could definitely see, let's say, the head of the criminal division at the Justice Department pushing the money laundering charges and the section. Uh, I've also noticed their role in a number of like uh, these investigations. For example, uh, the ongoing massive investigation against Pedavesa for FCPA violations in Venezuela, uh, we've seen a lot of money laundering charges and people from the AML 
section uh, of the criminal division working with people from the FCPA unit. So yeah. you, you raise a really good point about that. In other words, we're going to see AML as another yeah. focus here. I think that's going to continue to just, I think that's going to be a significant growth area. Uh, you're quite right about the Petabasa cases. I'm involved in a, in a, in a small portion of that matter. And um, I've certainly seen that up front that, uh, you know, money laundering is, is front and center because the matter I'm associated with, there's just, there wouldn't be no uh, jurisdictional basis for, for an FCPA action. So it's, as I said, it's just much more convenient to, to draw upon the money laundering statutes for the reason you mentioned. Um, and I, and I think, you know, there's going to be more and more of that collaboration. And, and of course we've seen in the past, you know, five years, a significant increase in cross-border collaboration amongst uh, criminal counterparts and the enforcement space. I think that's going to, you know, only continue as those relationships strengthen and more and more commitments are made by more and more countries um, to step up their enforcement and assist DOJ. So I think the takeaway is, you know, it, it, that it's going to be very difficult uh, for any, you know, kind of person who's inclined to engage in, in corruption to, to avoid detection. And, uh, you know, obviously companies would do well to be proactive in, in, in addressing that, that area of risk for sure. Yeah. Um, another area I wanted to raise, because I know you also do and have done a lot of work uh, in healthcare uh, fraud. And uh, I noticed, uh, I didn't know this, but when you were in North Carolina, you did a lot of work in that area in the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was uh, both in, in, in Charlotte and in Richmond. I did a lot of healthcare fraud prosecutions, I think because nobody really wanted to do them. Nobody else wanted to do them. Um, <laughs> well, look and, at it now, uh, though. I mean, yeah, what, a, what right. a program has developed now. And uh, so I, one thing I definitely uh, the, would notice is that the Obama administration was had much more success, I would say, in large uh, false claims act and settlements and prosecutions there. And I think that this administration is going to be, you know, hyper aggressive on healthcare fraud. And if you're involved in the healthcare industry, either as a provider or a pharmaceutical or device company, I think uh, this could be some real uh, higher risks in this area because they, their false claims act settlements on an annual basis, you know, we're in the multi billions. Uh, and, and higher than it's been at the uh, under the Trump administration. So I think that that's going to resume, uh, if anything. I agree with that. I mean, and, and healthcare is such a you know a hot ticket item generally that uh, you know it's hard to imagine that enforcement would diminish in that space. I think it's it's safe to assume it's going to increase, perhaps sharply. And as you know, uh, the false claims statute is the tool of choice, uh, you know, in both civil and criminal context. And uh, uh, I, I tend to agree with your, your projection on that, Mike, as well. Yeah. And you, but you noticed, you mentioned something that companies right now should be thinking of how do we mitigate our risks? And that, to me, uh, you know, just begs the question on putting resources into your compliance programs and doing proactive 
taking proactive steps, you know, uh, audits, other types of things to bring your compliance program together. Because I think the steady push from DOJ has been, we expect you to put more resources into these compliance programs and, and we want to see robust compliance and we'll reward you for it if you get in trouble down the road. But do you see the same trend? I think it's going to continue in there. Yeah, I do too. I think, you know, with increased enforcement, of course, it's going to present the opportunity for companies, you know, to, to, you know, position themselves in a defensible manner by demonstrating that they have undertaken, um, you know, compliance and controls uh, programs that, you know, meet the expectations of DOJ and other enforcement uh, agencies. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's particularly important in this, you know, time of, uh, I guess transition, if you call it, in terms of the dealing with the pandemic and and allocating resources carefully, I, I, compliance certainly shouldn't be overlooked um, because you know uh, it's a short term versus long term proposition, and I think you'd be much better off managing risk proactively uh, by constantly assessing risk and uh, enhancing and remediating than responding and reacting to an enforcement action, as which, as you know, is a is a very costly exercise yeah and and look we still have the sec whistleblower program and we had some you know record awards this past year uh and i i think you know under a preet barara or you know a more aggressive sec i think that's going to continue to grow and that raises real risks within every organization that you know somebody could become a whistleblower hoping to get uh, a reward yeah, it's it's just there's no shortage of whistleblowers now, as you know, Mike. I mean, we had a case not too long ago where a whistleblower came out of the base of the Himalayas, and they really do come, you know, in all shapes and sizes and all from four corners of the globe. So it's 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 just entirely, you know, um, too easy for a whistleblower to shoot in an email to DOJ or SEC and alert them to an issue, and off you go. Uh, so I, I think. Uh, that plus, you know, sharp competition and the prospect of competitors, you know, blowing the whistle uh, with either founded or unfounded claims, I think is also something that just continues to present itself as a challenge. Yeah. Um, you mentioned early on, uh, Brian, criminal antitrust. Uh, and do you, what what do you see happening there? Well, obviously that's handled by the antitrust division, not the criminal division, but um, you know, we've seen a lot of cases come out of the antitrust division, particularly in generic pharmaceuticals, chicken processors, and other things. So, what what do you see happening under the new the new Biden antitrust division? I mean, I think the complexion is, you know, again, this is just a generality, but historically, you know, I think with um, change from Republican to a Democrat administration usually brings with it, um, you know, increased enforcement in the antitrust space. Um, I think on balance, that tends to hold true. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, we have started to see a little bit more of a combination of, you know, um, uh, antitrust and anti-corruption cases starting to take hold because, you know, with, with procurement and uh, bidding uh, comes the you know, susceptibility to potentially corrupt conduct. So I think that's something that might be interesting to keep an eye on as, as we move forward and turn the corner on a new administration. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it, it works like if there's a cooperating witness, you know, in, um, let's say, in an FCPA case, I've sat there and the government will ask them after they're done talking about the FCPA, they say, okay, do you know anything about antitrust? Do you know anything about fraud? Do you know, you know, they just go down the list of potential yeah. crimes and usually antitrust is right behind it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm I'm currently involved in a matter where the um, investigating agent from the FBI um, is assigned to handle both the antitrust aspect of the investigation as well as the corruption aspect, Mm. which is which, you know, which is which is interesting, to say the least. So, um, you know, it looks like the bureau is starting to, you know, maybe enlarge their, their mandate a bit in that respect. Um, but I think it is somewhat of a new a new trend that we're starting to see. Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, any other thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, and uh, but in terms of you know regulatory enforcement, and you know we're talking across agencies, particularly banking agencies, the CFPB, financial industry. I mean, uh, I noticed that there are a number of banks that are settling cases right now on internal controls weaknesses and that people are speculating they're doing it before the Biden administration takes over those regulatory agencies. But what do you, do you see the same sort of trend there as well? Yeah, I do. I think, uh, I think that, you know, focus on financial institution fraud and, uh, you know, regulatory oversight is, is, is certainly going to increase. Uh, it seems like it's diminished a bit. Um, uh, following the Obama administration, I think we can expect to see that uh, reinvigorated for sure. Yeah. But I told you the last thing. I told you. Uh, I just just add a little color. Uh, yeah. I, I think I told you at the outset that I I had an interaction with um, then Attorney General Ashcroft in oh, the early yeah. going. And, yeah, um, you have to tell the story. Uh, you can't yeah, leave it's, without it's, that. Yeah. Without that. Right. It's uh, it's it's one of those things you just don't forget because I found myself in his office one day waiting on a group of folks uh, to to join the meeting, and um, interestingly, he proceeded to tell me a story of how he was, had started playing basketball at the uh, at the <laughs> DOJ gym, and there was a no dunking sign up on the wall, and he said he took it upon himself as the leader of. Uh, you know, national law enforcement that he thought he should, you know, kind of be the pace setter when it came to not dunking a basketball <laughs> in a gym. And uh, and he 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 held forth and went went on a great length to 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 share this story with me. And I think the uh, the it, it, there was a there was certainly an element of of um, humor in that, and because uh, he wasn't uh, particularly tall individual but uh. I had the benefit of uh, when I was on Capitol Hill and I had lunch with him and with Senator uh, Hatch who was then the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and uh, he was he was pretty entertaining to watch the two of them speak uh, and <laughs> entertain each other you can imagine because uh, they both uh, enjoyed their religious uh, songs and whatnot right. so I was, I was afraid Senator Hatch was going to start singing so right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway add a little color yeah yeah absolutely well brian if uh thanks for your time great insight as always um if people want to get in touch with you 
what's the best way that they can uh, reach you to sort of follow up on any issues that may come up? Well, you're kind. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm my, my website uh, webpage on uh, BakerMcKenzie.com certainly has my contact details. Happy to chat with anybody uh, about any all manner of uh, topics, um, including those we spoke of today. And Mike, really kind of you to spend some time with me. And it's always great to catch up with you. Yeah, well, it's great, Brian. Uh, and I uh, having the privilege of working with you, I can tell anybody uh, he, Brian is a terrific attorney, uh, knows the right people to speak to, and also is just a really good uh, tactician when it comes down to it. So um, look, best of luck. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, you know, let's look forward to a good, uh, hopefully a better year in 2021 than 2020. That's for sure. Right on, so. Mike. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.